welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. Like a lot of murder mystery fans, I consider myself a bit of an expert in the fictional art of murder. I've read enough whodunits now to think that I know how to use phrases like time of death and rigor mortis, at least. But of course, the real science behind these stories is far more nuanced and complex than a crime writer can necessarily reflect. And that's why I'm delighted to welcome as my guest today a longtime friend of the show, Carla Valentine, who's going to give us a crash course in forensics as it relates to the work of Agatha Christie. A queen of crime, yes, but also someone with a surprisingly deep understanding of what happens to the body after death. Carla is a trained mortuary technician and the technical curator at Bart's Pathology Museum in London. She's also the author of Murder Isn't Easy, The Forensics of Agatha Christie. When did you first get interested in forensic science? I was a really strange child. I I got interested in it very early on because I loved biology when I was about sort of six or seven. And then when I started to learn that you could actually use biology to solve crimes, you know, as forensic science, I I thought it was fantastic. And I just wanted to to do that for the rest of my life. So I must have only been about eight, eight or nine. And, And coincidentally, it was around the same time that I picked up an Agatha Christie book from the library. Right, yes, because that was going to be my next question, is how did that connect to your childhood introduction to Agatha Christie? So the first one that I picked up, the first Agatha Christie book that I picked up um, from the library was The Body in the Library. And I think in that particular story, there are so many different forensic clues and there's so much going on with the body itself and this sort of, this way that they're trying to, to hide the time of death and hide the identities of different deceased and that was really what made me think, oh, you know, this this is biology as applied to crimes and puzzle solving. And for me, at sort of, you know, eight years of age, who'd been reading A-level biology textbooks, this was like a, a, a much more sort of Ill- illustrated and a much more rich way to learn all about forensic science. Yeah, no, that is, that is a perfect first, Christy, if, if that's your interest, because as you say, yeah, there's so much emphasis on, so much misdirection and so on involved in that, no, that that's that's very fortunate. Absolutely. It was it was that one and the the Tuesday night club of the 13 problems. It was those two and it was just such a brilliant sort of introduction to Christie and I remember reading the short stories and thinking gosh all of these could have made you know the full length books and she's you know so it was it was just such a good way to be introduced to Christie but definitely the body in the library was just perfect. And so with that childhood interest and sort of nurtured by Agatha Christie novels Tell me a bit about what you then went on to do when you were studying and then when you sort of entered working life. So I basically thought to myself, I want to do forensic science. I want to do pathology specifically because it is all to do with the body and um, death and disease. And I didn't actually know what that role was. I didn't know that it existed. I I knew that there were doctors who were called pathologists and I didn't want to do that. I I didn't want to go through medical school. I didn't want to work on live patients as, you know, as as sort of antisocial as that sounds. My interest was purely pathological. So I sort of had this kind of idea, I guess, when I was a child. And then one day I came across what the role actually was, which was an anatomical pathology technologist. 
um, you know, formerly known as, as as a mortician, but sort of slightly slightly more scientifically named now. Um, and that was it. As soon as I realised that that was the role that I was I was talking about in my own head, you know, the the Sam to the Quincy's out there, as opposed to being Quincy. Um, I just started to research that and look into the different ways that I could make that my life's work. And um, I was really lucky. I, I knew somebody who was an embalmer. Well, my, my friend's mum was an embalmer, <laughs> as, as you know, as you do. Uh, and I worked with her for a short while just as a volunteer, just to, to work out whether or not I was actually cut out for this job that I'd wanted all these years. And as I was doing that as a volunteer, I went into forensic science at university and, and back then, there was only three different courses across the entire of the UK. I mean, now they're everywhere. But back then, there was Liverpool, there was Bradford, and there was Strathclyde, I think. And because I was from Liverpool, it just made sense to, to study it there. And um, and then while I was studying, I turned up at the local mortuary, again, as you do. And I sort of said, hi, you know, I'm, I'm interested in this as a career. Um, I'm studying forensic science. I do all these different modules. Could I do some volunteer work with you? And they let me. <laughs> so I was really, really fortunate um, as I was studying toxicology at uni and, you know, all sorts of forensic topics, documentation and uh, fingerprints and, and everything like that. I was also able to learn in the mortuary as well how it was actually applied to, to autopsies and solving crime. Um, and then when a job came up, a full time job as a trainee APT, it was it was great. I, I interviewed and obviously I knew a lot about the job having been doing it as a volunteer so it was all very I was really lucky but I also worked for it at the same time. And then you you worked in that position for a number of years and then you ended up now working as a curator uh, so tell us a bit about your your curator job. Well the curator job is fantastic really because I've been able to take all of the information that I kind of sucked up and everything I learned as an APT for nearly 10 years and that was you know all applied to modern crime and you know modern human remains. I'm the curator of a historical collection of body parts now so and because I've got an interest in Agatha Christie because I'm interested in anything vintage and, and lots of medical history it means I can apply my knowledge to that so it's like I've got my feet in two different sort of worlds of pathology, you know, the, the, the past and, and the present. And um, it, it's, it's been really, really amazing to sidestep across. So I think 10 years in, in sort of modern autopsies. And then I did 10 years just this October, 10 years at Bart's Pathology Museum. So it's, I've been really, really lucky. And the collection there, if I understand it rightly, is quite large. It's there's a lot of body parts that we're talking yeah, about. It's a it's a lot of body parts. It's um the museum itself was built in 1879, but the earliest one that we've got is from 1750, and um, there's five thousand of them, you know, at least. And they span all sorts of different categories. You've got your cardiovascular, general pathology, um, locomotor, and we've got diseases like syphilis and tuberculosis um, and then an awful lot of what was originally called medical legal specimens and what are now you know called the forensic specimens and they span sort of 100 150 years perhaps and that's that's been really useful for obviously my my love of Agatha Christie but also for the book as well and all the research. Yes because you mentioned that word medico legal there and that was something that I I learned from your book very interestingly was this transition in the way we talk about this field that in its infancy it was very much connected to the legal process 
Um, and of course, obviously it still is, but it's grown now into its own field of science. Give us a bit of an overview about how that happened. Yeah, so originally it was it was even known as things like, you know, medical jurisprudence, um, yeah, medical legal. And uh, but although the, the term forensic was used, you know, as early as about 1900, I think, um, it took a while to get into the general vernacular. But obviously now, I mean, I think everybody knows what a forensic scientist does, don't they, really? And with things like CSI on TV, you can't really get away from it. And it's used even in, a, in the context of a sort of, you know, close examination. So I, I have these Google alerts on my phone for forensics. And I, I always get these things like forensic analysis of match between West Ham and Liverpool. And I'm like, that's not what forensic means. <laughs> but I think it, but it's good in a, in, a, in a way, because obviously then everybody's familiar with, with with what it means, really, which is, you know, pertaining to the law. Right, yes. And I think people who read a lot of crime fiction, many of whom listen to this podcast, will be familiar with the sort of late Victorian idea of Sherlock Holmes crawling around with a magnifying glass or uh, someone like Dr. Thorndike in the um, R. Austin Freeman stories who's obsessed with dust and <laughs> bits, tiny bits of ash and, and that kind of thing. Um, how does it get from that kind of early 1900s idea to the CSI bag it and take it to the lab? Well, I think really it sort of takes one great man who was, you know, Professor Bernard, Sir Bernard Spilsbury, um, pretty much sort of unchallenged pathologist from 1910 to, you know, the 1940, late 1940s when he died. And even though nowadays there's certainly a question asked about the fact that he was able to work so independently and be... Um, the last word on pretty much, you know, any particularly famous crime at the time. And that a lot of that is questioned now. There's, there's, there's no denying that he really did change the face of pathology. And I think Lucy Worsley says that a pathologist, a forensic pathologist is a Victorian invention. And she's sort of right in that sense, because as you say, we do hear a lot of it in, in Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, but Bernard Spilsbury in real life kind of, he was like a literary character. He was like a character from a book. But in real life, you know, very imposing and and um, very stylish and very knowledgeable. And he did bring items such as the CSI um, examiner's kit, like a specific kit to examine a crime scene or a body created by Bernard Spilsbury um, because he was at crime scenes all the time and he, he kept seeing gruesome things like police officers picking up chunks of flesh and, and wiping up blood but with their hands and their own handkerchiefs because they didn't have any equipment. So, um, yeah, so I think with Bernard Spilsbury, we started to get a much more regimented and um, a profession, you know, of forensic pathology. Mm. And uh, I, I always remember, I think my first encounter with him was when reading about the Crippen trial. And when they, they sort of had, is it right, they handed like a dish with a piece of the victim's stomach skin that supposedly had a identifying scar they sort of like handed it around the courtroom yes. <laughs> and I just felt like this is clearly a man who had a sense of drama yes because I think he was one of the, the the first people in that sort of in that job to invite 
the ju- the jury in to sort of take a look at what he was doing and explain to them. And you know, we still do that to this day. It was it was done in nineteen o two as well with the, with fingerprints. You know, um, the first ever time fingerprints were used in court, and the images were sort of blown up to large proportions so that the jury could see them. So it wasn't necessarily a new idea, but I think that he did it very successfully. And um, yeah, it certainly just made it so that so that we there was more protocol. I mean, I say that there was also the time when he nearly drowned a female police officer in the in the bath trying to re- uh, recreate the um, the brides in the bath. So I think a lot of it was his own experimentation as well. Yes, that that's that is still a story that absolutely haunts me. <laughs> like when I, I did a whole episode about the brides in the bath a while ago. So if any listeners are interested, they should go and go and listen to that. But yeah, the idea that he sound scientific principle try and reconstruct what happened but if it works too well you might accidentally nearly murder somebody she was lucky wasn't she i think she was revived after a while but that was incredibly lucky given the success story of you know george smith's uh, murders so yeah so it's probably something he noted down don't try that one again (laughs) (laughs) yes absolutely um and another uh, idea i think i'm right in saying from the very early 20th century that you write about a lot in the book is um every contact leaves a trace this principle that i think is now is still a foundational idea of forensics how why is that so important yes they they sort of called the fundamental tenet of forensic science that every every contact leaves a trace um which was said by edmund locard who was a French uh, criminalist, so basically a French forensic scientist in about 1910. And that's really basically what forensic science is, isn't it, really? Is that whenever you go into a, a crime scene or a room or, or anything, for that matter, you know, you're going to leave a smudge or a spray or a sprinkle of some part of you, whether it's saliva or a hair or some skin flakes. And that really is the, the, the you know, forensic science's main principle. Is that, and that the more analytical we get with our equipment the smaller those traces are that we can find now so connecting it back to agatha christie she had this extraordinary literary career that spanned so many decades how did she stay up to date with this kind of thing because as a fiction writer you might say it's not really it's not really her area I think with Agatha Christie, she certainly was um, somebody who was a perfectionist and she wanted her work to reflect reality a lot of the time. And well, and she talks about it in later books a lot more through the, uh, as you probably know, through the character Ariadne Oliver, she talks about people kind of pointing out when she gets things wrong. So I think as she progressed through her career, it probably became more and more important to her to, to make sure things were very realistic. Um, and I think also it she just enjoyed it too. You know, the fact that they had formed the detection club and, you know, she was involved in the detection club and um, all of the members would talk about current crimes and talk about the different ways the crimes were re- uh, researched and um, investigated. The fact that there were books like the Notable Trial series that, you know, people like Agatha Christie read just for enjoyment anyway. And they would obviously give away a lot of the information that was heard in the courtroom. I think um, she she just enjoyed learning about it as well and um, she certainly did say that she read some of the journals sort of criminalistic science journals at the time too as well as talking to people who were in the fields of law or medicine so she must have she must have enjoyed it and she must have really liked giving her stories that realism and not having anyone question you know oh that inquest didn't sound very realistic or, or you know when she knew she got it right she was probably very satisfied Yes, I think, yes, she was an enthusiast. 
like you or I, yes. <laughs> which is quite quite comforting, I think. Yeah. Um, and you, you say in the book as well that you're always struck by her accuracy, that she didn't just blur the details or sort of fudge it to suit her plots, that she always made sure she got it right. Um, it, do you have a favourite example of, of that that people might have come across? I think um, one of my favourites, things was actually when I sort of started to research the blood chapter because I think along with a lot of people in the world I didn't think that Agatha Christie was a particularly bloody author and um, Mm. I was pleasantly surprised you know as as somebody who's quite happy in, in a bloody environment I was pleasantly surprised by the amount of blood in this in many of the stories in many of the books but by the accuracy of some of her fra- phrases so for example she uses the term spatter when she says blood spatter which is the correct scientific term rather than splatter which is sometimes erroneously used and can be a bit irritating um and she talks about um she doesn't mention luminol by name but she talks about the development of this chemical which is able to show up old blood stains so I think that that was really brilliant for me because I, I just thought, wow, she you know she really has looked into this to get this terminology right. I mean, there's plenty of times when she plays fast and loose with the idea of time of death estimation and says, oh, it has to be between midday and two, and there's no way that anybody can be that accurate. But she goes on to talk about that in other stories or in. in prior story she already mentions that she knows that's the fact she knows that a doctor can't be that um that specific so we know that she's just using it for the the sort of the for the plot and for a bit of artistic license so I think um yeah I, I think definitely the blood was a really nice surprise though and there'll be more on that after the break in history's secret heroes Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gorem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. I, like you, definitely think of 
Christie and lots of the other authors from that period as being quite lacking in gore, especially if you compare it to modern crime fiction, that they don't go into huge amounts of description of what the bodies look like and so on. And it all happens in this quite sanitized way later. But reading your book and particularly the chapter chapter on blood and how blood is used, I realized that it does play a large role, even if she's not talking about like welling pools of blood all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and, and some of the stories may mention just a simple rusty smear, um, particularly earlier on. But I think certainly as she progresses through the, the decade, she, she talks more openly about, you know, blood flowing freely and dripping and spurting. And, and she talks about the difference between arteries and veins. She talks about ways to preserve blood. Um, so, and, and, you know, in, also the autopsy there's there's a lot more phrases about sort of gruesome extra dead bodies gory bodies greenish tinge than I remembered from my first sort of reading of her entire catalogue when I was younger so it was a real joy to go through it with my highlighters and be like oh I can highlight this as you know a gruesome gory body and you know this says blood spatter (laughs) and it was it was great it was much more than I expected. For the forensic scientist coming on the scene or uh, analysing the material afterwards, what is the significance of a blood spatter today that might not have perhaps struck Hercule Poirot, say? Most interesting things about blood spatter, I think, from from the later books and from our modern times is of course, DNA, um, because, you know, Agatha was writing only up until the 70s and DNA hadn't even, you know, been discovered. It was sort of 86, I think, when it first came into the press. So, you know, Poirot would never, um, I I don't know if he could ever have imagined how useful, you know, blood spatter would become, particularly because he wasn't really interested a lot of the time in physical evidence and, you know, wanted to just think the case through. But I I, I think... um, sort of going back a little bit further, you can also see this this idea that blood types, you know, we forget that there was a time when blood types weren't even being identified and separated out so that criminals could just say, well, I've I've got blood on me because I went to a butcher's or, you know, I, I did something with a steak. Um, and there was no way to say whether or not that was true. And it's even in Mrs. McGinty's Dead, I think, which is quite a late book, that one of the the um, people accused of murder tries to explain it away that way. And of course, then we were able to start separating, you know, animal blood from human blood and then blood types. So, um, so yeah, so Poirot was, it was quite an interesting time for Poirot to be a detective, I think, with all of these different advances in, in blood. Because he does, and of course, you know, the portrayal of Poirot is not always entirely consistent across every story and novel that he appears in, but you you quote uh, quite a lot from the mysterious affair at Styles, where he does have almost a, quite a forensic approach to the crime scene because he has his little bag yeah. and his little collecting envelopes and so on. And uh, I think you mentioned in the book that that's that's quite shocking for the time that it was written. Yeah, because um, with with the, the the crime scene examiner's kits, we sort of talked about that they didn't come into creation in, in the real world until Bernard Spilsbury thought them up in sort of like the 1920s um, and 1924, 1925. Um, whereas Agatha, you know, as we know, she started to write The Mysterious Affair at Styles in 1916, came out in 21. And so she she basically had the idea for a crime scene examiner's kit before one existed in real life. Um, but I think with Poirot, it's, it's really odd because, yeah, he, he doesn't really stay true to his um, opinions in the mysterious affair at Styles, and he chops and changes a lot. But I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that 
when Christy wrote that, she's very much leaning on the the sort of Conan Doyle idea of of, of Sherlock and and Watson, isn't she really? Whereas I think he develops a little bit more as as we go through the decades. But his his relationship with forensic evidence really changes. Some, sometimes he's just in awe of it, and then other times he just shows it complete disdain. So it just depends on what book or what story. Mm. One common element that you find in basically all crime fiction, I think it's basically impossible to think of uh, a novel that doesn't do this, is fingerprints. And you have a whole section in in the book where you explain the development of the science of fingerprinting and so on. Um, but could you tell us maybe like, why are they so important? Like what do they do that nothing else was able to do? So fingerprints are... Um, they're probably like sort of one of our oldest uh, sort of ways to identify human beings. And before they actually came into use on their own, they were used as part of a system created by Alphonse Bertillon, who was an early crim- criminalist, who, again, Christy mentioned several times um, in the Bertillon system. And what, what Bertillon did was he measured parts of the body and took a photograph of the front and the side of the face and then took fingerprints. And after around 30 years of this entire convoluted system being used, um, it was realised that fingerprints were all you needed because of the fact that you're born with them. They don't change over your lifetime. Everybody's is completely unique. There's never been two people found with the same fingerprints. And so effectively, you know, you've got a sort of 98.9% chance of being right at identifying a particular individual from their fingerprint. And that was that was a real game changer in sort of 1902, 1903, um, when crimes began to be solved using fingerprints. Something that I learned from your fingerprints chapter that I did not know, which the uh, slightly more squeamish listener might not enjoy quite so much, but is the process by which you get fingerprints from a dead body. Would you mind describing it for the listener? Because I think it's fascinating. Absolutely. Yes. So this is the, the, I think they call it in the long convoluted terms, the indirect cadaver hand skin method or skin glove method. And this was talked about as early as the 1930s in, in Argentina. And basically when when a person dies, um, their their skin sloughs off. And if you're trying to identify a corpse who's you know become really sort of rotten and, and, and decomposed and the skin has begun to slough off you can actually just take the hand skin and put your hands in it like a glove and then fingerprint you know the the, the fingertip um over your own obviously we would wear latex gloves when we do this and I have done this actually because the thing about fingerprints that is so important, people always say to me, well, surely we just use DNA now, but we don't because fingerprints are an incredibly quick way to identify somebody and incredibly cheap. So we certainly don't just kind of do DNA tests left, right and centre. So in the mortuary, there was a lot of times when I would do the, this gloving method. And sometimes you just use maybe one finger or two fingers and, and they, they're I think it's quite cute that they're called skin thimbles in some of the um, some of the, the cr- criminalistics uh, journals. And uh, another thing that we would do is odontology as well. We'd have an odontologist come in and look at the teeth because, again, it's another really quick, really um, successful way to identify people, but and also cheaply. And that's another quite old method, isn't it? Because there are some crime stories from uh, sort of twenties and thirties that mention that as well as a means of identification yeah definitely I think even as far back as sort of um the late 1800s there was a murder of a a Harvard professor or you know and and 
I think the person had tried to get rid of the body by burning it, but they found a gold filling. So you can sort of take it back, you know, as far as that. And I think it's interesting that in some stories, Agatha uses odontology, not not as a science, but as an observation, when um, Miss Marple in particular notices one of the victim's teeth and then listens to how those teeth are described by everybody else and something just doesn't quite tally there. So at the sort of basic level, she's using odontology to say that's not the victim that we we think it is. So thinking about the way you examine a, a corpse after a murder and so on, obviously in the real world, an autopsy is a very like, regulated and... Um, practiced procedure how does Christy incorporate that stage of the process in her fiction she does it with incredible accuracy to be honest for for the time I mean nowadays the the likelihood of you having an autopsy is a lot higher than it was then because we have a sort of very specific set of rules Um, I mean when certainly when I was working in the mortuary if you didn't die of natural causes and your doctor hadn't seen you within two weeks of your death then you would certainly have a coroner's autopsy so that would mean that nobody would have a say in the matter Um, now in Agatha's time it was a bit more relaxed than that. And doctors would say, oh, um, you know, this this person, I've been treating them for, for gastric problems or for heart problems. I don't feel they need an autopsy. And that is definitely reflective of her time. It's also reflective of the fact that, you know, as you know, a lot of people were poisoned to death and people got away with it because we didn't autopsy regularly. And then you also see quite accurately a lot of exhumations in Agatha's works as well. So, you know, Hercule Poirot will say something like, well, we all know that arsenic, you know, poisoning resembles gastric problems. So we should have the corpse exhumed and, you know, do an autopsy. So she was really quite accurate for the time as well. And she was the same about inquests and the, the whole coronial procedure really reflected how it was at the time. And you mentioned poisons there, which I think people do associate with Christie very strongly that lots of her books use poisons she herself had some background as a as a volunteer dispenser and so on is that same accuracy present in her her use of poisons would you say yeah I mean if I think if Agatha knew anything she certainly knew poisons didn't she so she was she was quite comfortable um using that as a mode of death I know that she mentioned that she wasn't as comfortable using guns for example because you know one can imagine mm. she didn't run around shooting at things but I think she got she got more and more comfortable using guns and, and other methods as she went through um, sort of the decades. But she was also inventive. I mean, there's a lot of sort of modes of death there that I had totally forgotten were in any of her books. Um, so, so I think she she wrote so much that she had to experiment, didn't she? Really, she couldn't just sort of stick to one. She had to she had to vary it a little bit. But she definitely knew what she was talking about with the poisons. Do you have a a favourite death that Agatha Christie brought about, shall we say? Oh, let me think. I should have thought about that, shouldn't I, before we we, (laughs) we did the talk? (laughs) Um, Yes, I do. I do have a favourite death, but I think it's because it's one of my favourite stories as well, which is um, the death in Hercule Poirot's Christmas so I know that we're coming up to Christmas anyway. I have to say I read this or listen to an audiobook every single year um, because I just love love the story. But I also love the fact that it's a kind of locked room mystery. So it's this question about how did the death occur? It's really quite gruesome, which I think is a wonderful contrast to the sort of festive cheer 
of the time of year and also because there's a really interesting science in the story as to how the murder is made to look as if it was done later than it was that I was absolutely floored by when I reread that book I couldn't remember that being in it at all so for me I think that's probably my favorite murder it is a really good one um and I think that's the one isn't the book is dedicated to her brother-in-law and she kind of says see James I can do blood and gore yeah it is absolutely brilliant exactly and you know what what transpires is just so unexpected you know for and you can I just love that contrast between this idea of the festive household not that they were particularly happy in this story um and then this this really gruesome death so yes one of my absolute favorites what's something that most lay people get wrong about forensics perhaps if they've watched a lot of CSI they assume that it's possible to do X or Y, but actually that's not how it works at all. I think a classic one is probably the speed at which results appear because Mm. CSI and things like that would have you imagine that you get your results really, really quickly. And unless it's some incredibly high profile murder case or or something, it's just just not, not the way it is in real life. And you tend to have to wait a week or two for things like toxicology results, you know, serology results. But what I like is that it must have been the same in Christie's time because Inspector Jap talks about this quite a bit. And he says, you know, we won't get these results for a blimmin' while and that that sort of thing. I thought, oh, well, nothing's changed then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point because you do, yeah, you definitely do get the impression from books and films that the detective just snaps his fingers and whatever information suddenly appears but now I'm sure there's a lot of form filling and waiting and all the labs backed up and a lot of couriers involved a lot of red tape and I think the other one as well and you see this even in you know Midsummer Murders for example is that the pathologist seems to know everything about every forensic science so in you know so they start talking about paint and they're talking about mud and this sand is from this beach and it's like there's a lot to learn in pathology so People tend to stay in their lanes, you know. You don't get these kind of um, Gil Grissom from CSI or, you know, Sherlockian encyclopedic knowledge of all trace evidence. Um, pathologists and, you know, forensic anthropologists, they, they stay very much with the body and then leave the rest of it to the experts. So that's definitely something on TV is a little bit skewed. Yes, I think that's that's a really good point and definitely one that I forget when I'm reading fiction. It always just seems so perfectly coincidental that this person <laughs> happens to be a bone expert and they found some bones. But yeah, of course, not how it really happens. OK, well, I think that that's everything that I, I wanted to ask you. Thank you so much for being on She Done It, Carla. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. <laughs> to be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.